Buongiorno! Welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Safarik. And I'm Greg Lindsay. And we're back to the beginning, in a way. Uh, welcome to the first of what will probably be many of our Biennale Architecture recap episodes for 2023. Now, longtime listeners from like the beginning know that Unfrozen started as a way for Dan and I to sit in a Venice hotel room and um, productively unpack our thoughts on the last Biennale, how will, we live, how will We Live Together? And we've just got back from Venice where we just attended uh, curator Leslie Locko's uh, The Laboratory of the Future. So um, we have lots to talk about. Three delirious days of trying to see everything and do everything and uh, drinking spritzes, you know, dancing about architecture, all, all that good stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I obviously, let's dive into it. Because I, I have to say, as a starting point, Dan, um, I think we'll spend this episode discussing the international exhibition that LACO curated. Uh, we'll have an, in future episodes, we'll talk about the national pavilions. We're going to have interviews with curators from, uh, I believe, Canada, uh, Albania, uh, Hong Kong. We've got some others that we're lining up as well. So there's going to be lots to discuss. But, but let's start with a high-level view. Because I have to say, Dan, I, this is my fourth Biennale, so I have no real depths of expertise but having had some time to sit on it, I think it's conceptually the strongest I've seen. And I think it's really interesting, uh, we'll say this as a starting point, that this, this Biennale is part of this long arc since Rem Koolhaas in 2014, which was Elements of Architecture, which was sort of a deconstruction down to the bric-a-brac. And then the last four, with curators of Alejandra Aravena, uh, and then Grafton, the Irish practice, uh, Hashim Sarkis of MIT, and now Leslie Locko, uh, this big drift towards real, a conceptual way of thinking about architecture, which I think has been really powerful. But some people have hated it, including Patrick Schumacher, who is out there on Facebook saying there's no architecture in the Venice Architecture Biennale. And I'm curious your thoughts to that, Dan. Well, I, ha- I have to say, I, I never want to be in a position where I'm in alignment with Patrick Schumacher for very long. But I, I will say that it is, it is there has been a noticeable erosion of built space exhibition, uh, at least for the purpose of showcasing buildings that have been designed by architects. That's not necessarily to say that that's a bad thing uh, or that these are issues that don't need to be addressed. I mean, I think that it's, you know, the architect is supposed to have a holistic view of, you know, society and all the influences. And so if they're, if we're solely focused on the material form, we're missing something. Um, but I do think it's possible that we've swung pretty far the other way. Um, and it was probably most striking was that the curated exhibition was largely topical and conceptual, although the themes were very strong. Uh, as you say, they centered on things like decolonialization, Afrocentrism, uh, ec- extraction of minerals and other resources from the colonized lands as it happens. So that's, those are all, those were, that was a very coherent theme. But then uh, if you wanted to see architectural models, if you wanted to see, um, you know, someone's conception of a built space in the future, there were very few places you could go. There were, there was maybe uh, the David Ajay uh, exhibit kind of right off the bat um, showing these gigantic, beautiful models of, uh, Ghana, uh, the National Cathedral, and a bunch of other projects that he's been working on. Interestingly, though, Ajay also made an appearance across the Grand Canal 
at the giant Neom exhibition, which showcased at great expense the proposal for the line predominantly, uh, which is the 170 kilometer long, 500 meter tall and 200 meter wide stroke across the Saudi Arabian desert that is being erected right now uh, under the regime of Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the leader of Saudi Arabia. So it's quite stark that if you wanted to see architectural vitrines, the place you had to go was the place that probably had the most, the biggest counter narrative to the curated content. And, and I and I would argue that is certainly not a coincidence. So we'll come back to we'll come back to Neon, but I yeah, but I absolutely agree here that you know that that Leslie Locko, as part of her instructions as curator, and I'll come back to the themes in a second. But as part of her instructions as curator was you know think about the carbon footprint, think about you know the whole point of the Biennale because one of the one of the themes that wove through the Biennale is what is the point of the Biennale in the first place? In addition to all of the questionnaires when you're applying for press passes, asking how you are getting to Venice and asking how long you are staying because they're very conscious of the carbon footprint of our air travel, obviously what mass tourism is doing to the city, et cetera. So why are we even gathering there? And I think we'll, we'll cover over the course of this, there was a really strong case of like why we need to gather in person for that. But, you know, but then the counter to that is the Saudis who like, you know, show up with Neom and this, you know, gigantic model exhibition and, you know, all this proposed architecture. But, but I, you know, I think the reason, you know, my take on, like, why there wasn't as much proposed architecture in the International Exhibition is because of the themes you outlined there. And I thought it was powerful and cohesive. It is the idea that getting to this notion, when you say the laboratory of the future, as Locko described it, is number one. I mean, as urbanists, we know that the vast majority of remaining urban expansion on the planet due to demographics will be in sub-Saharan Africa. That is the urban frontier. It has never been substantially dealt with in the Biennales in any way. And then also just this larger notion, which is we, which was we discuss here, this, this idea, of course, that, that architecture as we know it, particularly, you know, we can get into like the trad style and imperial architecture of the last few centuries, was of course built on the backs of slave labor and resource extraction. This idea, that, of course, of the slave trade to unlock the sugar wealth in the Americas that paid for the edifices of London and Brussels and Paris the, you know, the destruction of the Congo, all these kinds of things. And then, and then I think, again, major point, we'll discuss some of the individual exhibits here as well, but multiple, uh, you know, exhibitors in the International Pavilion, like directly, for example, calling out Hudson Yards in New York and, you know, the stainless steel and the materiality, what that requires for resource extraction, and also calling out the narratives that the, the bright and shiny decarbonized future we want will also require strip mining the earth. And this will, of course, harm those communities. So I think a lot of the reason that the architecture was not displayed in the international exhibition is because those architectures haven't been built yet. And I guess we'll use it as a, I'll use this as a, as a segue into, um, you know, one of the honorees was the Silver Lion winner for Best Young Participant. And I love this as being architecture because the Best Young Participant is my age, 46, uh, was Ola Lekin Jafus, uh, who goes by Kid Cadaver on Instagram. You should definitely follow him. But he won the Silver Lion for Best, in, basically, Personal Contribution uh, for his, uh, I believe, mid-journey rendered using AI, one of several instances of basically sort of Afrofuturism, Black Panther style, uh, an Afrofuture sort of Afroport and imagining, you know, a, a future for Africa that was stolen from sub-Saharan African nations by exactly the kind of critiques that were put here. So I think people, you know, love that room. It was great pop art in many ways. Um, 
Maybe we could attach some images in the show notes. But I, I think people love this idea of like, we have to basically imagine those architectures because they do not exist. We have not built those models. Ajaye comes closest with his controversial major mosque for Accra and some of the others is there as well. But, but I, I, I don't know. That was one of the things that I tied to. I, you know, what, what were some of your favorites from the international exhibition or where do you think this goes? We'll, we'll save Neom, I think, for the end because it, it requires its whole own thing. Yeah, indeed. No, I thought there were a lot, a lot of really powerful illustrations. That is, it's almost like, it's almost like the theme was, well, okay, it's called the Laboratory of the Future, but we have to reconcile with the past and the present before we can move forward and attempt to create something that is better or equitable. So, uh, I thought what was really interesting was the sort of forensic and anthropological aspects, as well as the sort of investigative aspects were pretty interesting like this uh the exhibition by uh killing architecture and a group of journalists from the erstwhile buds buzzfeed who went to great lengths to document the detention of uyghur peoples in northwest china xinjiang um you know, it was an interesting, uh, especially for me, because, you know, my background is both journalism and architecture, to see how they collaborated and they used these, um, all the technologies at hand to both professions, you know, drone surveys, uh, photography, um, you know, GIS, and, uh, uh, you know, earth mapping, and, and just, just kind of piecing stuff together in a sort of um, detective story of, figuring out that the plausible deniability of the Chinese detention camps could be punctured. It could be denied. Um, so I thought that was really powerful. Um, and the stories that they got out of the individuals who had been detained and what they had gone through um, was, was really striking. And it was just, you know, interesting to see, like, <laughs> I think a lot of the commentary on, you know, China was like, wow, look at all this stuff that they're able to build. And one of the things they've been able to build very quickly, and though it doesn't have any architectural imprimatur, is prisons. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, Killing Architects was a, a tour de force there. Um, Allison Killing, it's named, it's named after her name, not, uh, not the, implying violence against architects. Um, but Allison Killing, you know, announced on Twitter that you know, she spent almost a year working on that project. And yeah, and shout out to BuzzFeed News and since Shuttered for their great work on that. Um, but yeah, like watching the conversion of schools, like the, you know, using this off satellite photography and in a handful of cases of actually on the ground corroboration by Chinese journalists. Um, I thought it was, yeah, it was particularly interesting in terms of like in, in a way how architecture could be perverted. And then yes, this sort of mass deployment of this, I thought was very striking. Um, but you're right, this notion of like a lot of the international exhibitions of this sort of reckoning or, you know, coming, coming, coming to terms with what, you know, with, with, yeah, the, the mass destruction. And I, I don't know the, obviously the, you know, the, the big takeaway I have of this, and I hope that audiences get this who visit the Biennale over the next six months, particularly white audiences, is that, you know, when you, when you sit down and you think about it, when you dwell with it as a white person, the monstrosity of, of slavery, of resource extraction, of, de of colonialization, those logics, it will drive you insane. And as white people, we don't have to dwell with it. It, has, it obviously happens to black and brown people every day. And uh, I think the single most powerful thing, there was, there was two exhibits that stood out in the curator's sort of special selection. Um, one was by Halloran Yoon uh, and, you know, uh, Mi Jin Yoon and, her, and their collaborators. There were several others, but it was Unknown Unknown. And it was a specific call out to uh, records of the slaves 
who basically built and administered the University of Virginia between 1817 and 1865. And it's called Unknown Unknown because so many of, of the enslaved people who did that were effectively seen as disposable. They didn't even record their names. And so standing in the gallery, and this again, like this is why like the materiality of the Biennale of, of you know, the sort of emanations of light, um, sort of almost like luminescent rosters from the, the tallying books, but then hearing a voice that just, the voices that just say over and over, unknown, 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 as they're reading through the roster of this, just the, the sheer brutality of what it was really, really hit me. And across the gallery from that, uh, a special call out was uh, one of the few instances of augmented reality. Um, we'll, have, uh, we'll have the curators of the Albanian Pavilion at some point to talk about sort of their VR, but um, a, a project called Ludi, which is actually a, a British Nigerian team that is going into the world's major art museums and using LIDAR scanners on their phones to basically 3D scan objects like the Rosetta Stone create a virtual AR instance and then actually sell NFTs against it. And I loved it. They did examples there with the, the vanished artifacts like the Great Wall of Benin uh, and some of the Benin bronzes in the gallery space. You can sort of see them and they rotate around in front of you. But, you know, they're, it's the only instance I've seen where they're actually using NFTs to actually expand access to ownership to these artifacts that have not been returned to their, to their, to their you know, native or, origins. But, you know, uh, but rather than sort of preclude them by, you know, by making it about bored apes and things like this. So I thought it was really interesting, this notion of like, you know, thinking about repatriation and digital repatriation. So those are those are two more that jumped out at me. But what, what, what else grabbed you? Looking, looking towards the future, what grabbed you? Hmm. OK, so thinking more about the thinking more about the futurism, I mean, I guess like. Uh, I actually liked Liam Young's uh, studio uh, or rather. Uh, his video room, which was called uh, The Great Endeavor. Um, you know, he's known for his immersive video art and his his imagery that uh, is kind of, for lack of a better term, Blade Runner-esque of a dystopian future. But it was actually semi-optimistic because what he did was um, he took, you know, archival video or drone footage of extraction technology like oil rigs and um you know both at sea and on land and then he uh superimposed digitally you know things like wind turbines and solar panels and other green technologies but but on these sort of massive sort of ominous infrastructures and there's plenty of you know sort of spooky digital you know electronic music playing and all all the kind of um anime adjacent stuff that that comes with his work but it was it was weirdly optimistic because it was like hey you know we put all this effort into extraction technology if we were to simply replace it one for one imagine how far we could get if we if we if bp was you know for example really sincere about being beyond oil uh what could you do yeah, I was sorry I missed that one. I mean, obviously, uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Liam's work, I mean, Liam is, uh, I mean, he specifically works in a practice uh, of world building. I mean, he basically builds cohesive futures. It is based at SciArc in LA, so particularly sort of like ties to the film industry and thinking this through. And um, and yeah, I mean, he is. Yeah, Liam's an interesting figure. He's deeply critical. We had him at Recite in 2018 as a speaker. 
And, um, you know, he has done all sorts of short films about drones um, and, you know, LIDAR raves in Detroit. And his last film, which I was sorry to miss this one, was sort of, again, like imagining like global population compressed into a single, you know, Judge Dredd-esque megacity uh, that was, you know, oddly dystopian, oddly utopian at the same time. Um, so I thought it was really interesting. Also, like, yeah, I was sorry I missed it because uh, I worked on something similar with Rafi Siegel and Susanna Drake back in 2017 where I imagined uh, of Exxon Monsanto, you know, basically merging together to do algae biorefinery stuff, which, which is actually taking a step toward the future because now Exxon is moving the direction of what the energy analyst Daniel Jurgen is now calling Big Shovel, where the oil majors are now moving towards the kind of resource extraction of lithium and other, other sources as well. So you can sort of see how reality is already catching up with that. Um, I thought it was great. Uh, you know, it also, again, sort of future, future leading just quickly. Um, one that stood out to me, which is, you know, apparently a, not a new commission, but also in that sort of realm of, of, uh, future audiovisual, again, non-architecture was Robots of Brixton, which is apparently a short film from 2011, but it's great in the sense that it imagines an alternate 1981 where instead of, of course, oppressed young black men in Brixton and London, it's robots. And so you can sort of imagine, um, you know, it allows you that kind of distance again to imagine and sort of think about, the, you know, what does this oppression actually mean? So that's up on Vimeo. So hopefully we can leave a link to that as well. Um, two more I want to give a shout out for in the International Exhibition. And like there was so much to cover. I literally have like the catalog in front of me trying to remember it all. But, um, but two that stood out, one, again, looking back towards the past, but in a really utopian sense, was forensic architecture's the Nebelivka hypothesis uh, or Nebelivka thesis, which, which is the first instance I've seen of sort of operationalizing some of the many examples that come out of the great book, The Dawn of Everything by the late David Graeber and the anthropologist David Wengro, which is their examination of basically 12,000 years of history, looking at these early prehistoric experiments uh, in alternate cities that are non-hierarchical, that are non-about agriculture, that are, you know, in this case, Nebelivka was a circular Ukrainian settlement, which they're now discovering via ground LIDAR and elsewhere, that appears to have no signs of hierarchy. That was a sort of anarchist city that was self-organizing. And, you know, the whole book is about all of this idea that, you know, that, that this sort of uh, wig-potted history of urbanism that you read about in books like, you know, Yuval Harari's, uh, you know, Sapiens is not the only way forward. And it reminds me, once again, of like the kind of genius that Jane Jacobs was, where with like no evidence, but purely speculating in the economy of cities, she speculated that like that cities arose from like pre-agricultural trade routes, you know, versus, you know, the sort of notion of Babylonian ziggurats that we think about. Like, so she was, she was in a way right, even without even having any kind of documentary or evidence. So I thought that was really powerful. And then I also want to give a shout out just um, off the top of my head for the one we didn't get to see because it was located outside the city. It was the Sweetwater Foundation run by Emmanuel Pratt out of Chicago. We had him speak at Recite in 2019. He's amazing. He had uh, some photo imagery in the arsenale of his K-Ords of the kind of meeting houses that he builds in the south side of Chicago. Wonderful, basically, kits of convening and bringing people together around, you know, constructed, uh, yeah, constructed meeting houses out of wood frames, constructed furniture that you can load into shipping containers, thinking through a kind of modular architecture of community and community coordination that I think is really powerful. That, in a way, was also called out uh, in the Golden Lion uh, citation uh, to the architecture practice DAR, which I'll have to consult the entire sort of thing here because it's very complex. They took the facade of a sort of fascist peak of architecture took that, recreated it as a sort of kit of parts for convening, as sort of seating, 
And then apparently for the last year have been basically doing community meetings and bringing people together in various communities of color to help them sort of imagine the future together. So the, the jury loved that particular one and awarded Golden Lion for Best International Exhibition. I know, I mean, there was just so many things. There was the astrolabe, the Black City Astrolabe, which, you know, sort of imagining the sort of rendered astrolabes, all, all these great sort of, you know, future slash historical combinations. I don't know, I'm, I'm riffing. We can, we can get to what my other, uh, my other great obsession, which is the tote bags as well. I mean, my own personal Golden Lions for that. But I don't want to give short, I don't want to give short shrift to all the sort of, you know, great, uh, great projects, which we can also come back to as well. I mean, you know, it's like uh, we're, we're both recording this, both like jet lagged out of our minds, you know, flying back here, but trying to do this while it's still fresh in our mind because it was just so much. And by the way, I mean, this is a, a smaller Biennale than the last one, which she went from, uh, Leslie Locke went from 112 participants down to 72, and it still felt like you could just spend days unpacking this. But I don't know, anything else jumped to mind? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did think it was really like, rhetorically rich even if it was there was a sort of notable absence of of proposed architecture as you say um yeah i didn't necessarily come away disappointed at that because i I actually did feel that those that so many of the exhibits although there was a knock on the fact that they were you know emphasized some of the some of the there was a little bit of criticism about how much was reliant on video right like there were so many you know segments that were that were uh, kind of predominantly based on you know black boxes showing videos which is a very common you know uh exhibition technique for uh for contemporary art and it's also something that was specifically suggested so as to reduce the overall carbon pr- footprint of the operation although that becomes a bit problematic when you are asking people to come from all over the world for a space of six months to go stand and watch a movie, um, which isn't to say that it isn't powerful. I mean, like, you know, uh, like I said, the Liam Young thing was, was great and it was very deeply immersive. Um, but I think, you know, the ones that, that, that really use material and really actually use built space effectively were, were, were of most interest to me. So I, I guess I would count among those um, well, I don't know, I guess we're sort of verging into the, uh, the National Pavilion area, but I did like what, what Saudi Arabia did with their tiles. Uh, they, did, they had all these roof tiles that were uh, centered on this theme of earth, I-R-T-H, which is not, does not mean the, the, the soil or planet earth, but that's kind of how it came across. Um, I don't know. I, okay, well, let's, let's go there. I, I, I want to save my... my... Golden line tote bags, uh, golden line of tote bags to the very end. Then, but like, let, since you mentioned the Saudi pavilion, let's use this opportunity to point out, which again, coming back to the the contradictions of this Biennale with our friends at Neom and the pavilion that they set up by themselves in an art gallery across the Grand Canal. Three of the national pavilions we'll discuss here, which I thought were very interesting. The Saudi one, as you mentioned, there very much focused on material. The UAE pavilion, uh, arid arid abundance or ab- abund- abundant aridity, I believe it was. Again, the sort of focused on dwelling on the conditions of being a desert nation and focusing on like how we use materiality there. And then the third, I don't know if we'll have I've had a chance to have audio with them, but we did get a chance to meet the uh, uh, Bahrain curators, or I did, uh, who are both uh, recent MIT grads. They had a great one, Sweating Assets, which you know, was both basically about condensation from air conditioning and thinking about you know, how do you try to close some of those loops, thinking about like, how, do you, how do you adapt 
to a more form of circular economy and circular reconditioning of like all those ACs that are dripping water in the desert. And, um, and I also love the title of it because, you know, sweating the asset is a term from finance there about like, how do you maximize uh, your already invested assets for all they're worth, which in the Gulf, of course, means their petrochemical investments, which comes up on COP28. And that brings us over to Neom. Okay, so not only were we fortunate enough to attend the pavilion, and I would encourage anyone listening to this uh, that you should go if you happen to be in Venice. It's completely free to visit. There's timed entry, but there's an open sign-up form. But we were also graciously invited by the host of the pavilion uh, to be participants in the audience of the opening talk, uh, in this case, with Peter Cook, Sir Peter Cook, uh, one of the one of the co-founders of Archigram, a practice that conceptually means a lot to me, who is part of the... Ooh, the I, w- I wouldn't say a super group because they're all doing their own things, but the large roster of Starkitects that Neom has engaged to come up with complementary, competing renderings, it was a lot to process, and you process more of it. So, Dan, walk us through, because Twitter has been alight with images. People are photographing it. There was no restrictions on, on the talk. It was on the record, uh, and there was a lot to say, what, what Peter Cook had to say. But, but tell us first about the pavilion, Dan. Walk us through not just the models on display, but also the style books that were there. Oh, yes. So, so the, the, the pavilion was centered in uh, an old abbey, as it turns out, which is now an exhibition space, as many such buildings in Venice have been repurposed. Um, it had a, so it had a center courtyard. And the organization of the space was striking, shall we say. Uh, the auditorium in which the discussions took place was under the 45-degree tilted map of the topographical map of the line, the 170-kilometer-long, 500-meter-tall, 200-meter-wide stroke across the Saudi Arabian desert that is being uh, constructed as we speak by some 70,000 workers, according to uh, according to our hosts. So the space was... Uh, it filled the room, basically. It filled the courtyard. So there was that. And then organized around it were these large sectional models of all of the architectural proposals from the A-list of A-lists. You know, you had Ajay, you had Morphosis, you had Co-op Himmelblau, you had UN Studio, all looking at different sections, building on the same set of themes... There was so much hyper, hyper proximity, hyper local. There was, there was, it was six principles of what they called zero gravity urbanism, and yeah, and hyper was used at least in at least three of them. I don't have the, I don't have the book in front of me, which they sort of laid out some of these principles, which was given free to attendees. So they've printed a lot of matter as well. I think one of the more interesting souvenirs that I have. But yeah, lots of, lots of hyper, a multiverse city, and and you know, yeah, again. Well, yeah, please continue with the description of this, too, because not only do they have, you know, the models, but right, but they actually have, like, the uniforms proposed for the staff. Tell us more about that. Yes. On the upper floor of the exhibition, it was a two-floor exhibition, one of the rooms was a lovely uh, corner space that had a view across the canal toward uh, Piazza San Marco, Uh, and it was full of these luscious, gigantic bound, oversized lookbooks where they made it clear that they had thought not only about, you know, things at the huge rendered scale of mega cities, uh, you know, compressed into this, this, you know, uh, extruded line, but also they had thought down to the details of what the identification 
was going to look like, uh, you know, of course, with biometrics and, uh, 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 you know, thumbprint, ID, thumbprint IDs and all kinds of stuff like that. And then, uh, of course, yes, the uniforms, which were like cyberpunk via anime from at least 20 years ago. Um, but it was very like, yeah, desert, desert oriented. But I mean, you know, it was like fully detailed. Uh, and and all the employees were supposed to have this sort of rugged, kind of ripped desert, I don't know what to call it, distressed uh, look uh, somewhere between tattooy and I don't know. no, I mean, it's somewhere somewhere between you know Dune and Cyberpunk, you know Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. I mean, it was very much in that sort of milieu. But but you know we don't have to dwell on the aesthetics of it too much there, but. But yeah, but it was this fascinating. I mean, it was it was it was amazing to see. We saw it on the Saturday night, which is sort of the end of our three days of the Biennale. So seeing Neon basically flout every instruction that Leslie Locko had given to the international exhibition was its own sort of weird in- incongruity. And then you know, and this is where things started to get interesting and again controversial because literally everything about Neon was controversial, and we'll come back to that. But um, but the first part is is like yeah, there was there was a roster of speakers. I would encourage listeners neonvenice.com that lays out. The exhibition, the the roster of speakers that go through September, um, and you know, and the first one was was Peter Cook, uh, who is working on the project. Who during his talk with Anthony Vive, who is you know one of the top officials of Niam, who's a former deputy mayor of Barcelona, Vive, who really sort of it was an interesting conversation because Vive, you know, really did the hard sell for Niam, and you know, did so in the context of looking at, of course, you know, former former top public official at a very planned grid city in Barcelona that is beloved. Also calling attention to the fact that we were sitting in another improbable environmental city of Venice, you know, which Cook also nodded to, to saying how he was from the swamps of northern Europe, of London and those environments. So making this case that, you know, that building, you know, the line in the middle of an uninhabited desert is not as improbable as it would sound, although we could talk about that. But, um, but, you know, I would say that, you know, the, the cook, you know, is literally building Archogram is, is, and, and alluded to this several times, showing the illustrations that he has made for Neom and drawing it out there. I, you know, I walked away from his opening discussion wanting to have like framed prints of it to see that he's actually having that chance. And, and I should note that Cook is an 86-year-old knighted British man. Uh, a friend whom I sent an image noted that, you know, oh, the city of the future, has, if it's the city of the future, why does it have two old white men as its representatives? And she had a point because in the back of the room, behind the seating area that we were graciously seated in alongside uh, architects like Jean Nouvel, who was the next speaker in front of us, Michelle Roquin, the Mexican architect, does great work. Next to us was one of the collaborators from, from Pay Cobb. Uh, and other luminaries there, the back of the room was full of young architects, many of whom were young, young women of color from the global south, uh, from Lebanon, from South Asia, um, you know, basically the, the future of this. And so you had this sort of real dichotomy in the audience that I thought was really striking. Um, Dan, before we get to your thoughts, before I get to my thoughts on Peter Cook, and which ties into my thoughts on Nia, what did you think of his discussion or how he framed it? Because the whimsy of Cook is hard to, for me to capture in words, at least. It really is, and I mean, I was kicking myself that I didn't have a recording of all this because it it was pretty bananas. It was it was pretty much unhinged. Like he, well, it was unhinged, but it was also very metered in that sort of uh, highly educated British speaking method that I think only people like Peter Cook <laughs> can carry forward. But he was quite articulate in in saying that, you know. Uh, this is absurd. Uh, this is an absurdity, but that's okay. We should undertake 
architectural experimentation, and we, it, it's it's laudable that that uh, Neom engaged with people who have the guts to do this. I mean, guts comes with money and comes with power, apparently. You know, so it, it, there's an implication that that the I think he referred to as the self-flagellation of the programming of the rest of the Biennale, you know, was somehow uh, cowardly or somehow uh, weak, you know, which which isn't a very good look um, when you're representing, uh, you know, when you're when you're presenting work for the, you know, a regi- which we'll come back to, but a regime that, of course, is the epitome of resource extraction. Exactly. So it's like, yes, uh, the, I mean, that you could not have come up with a greater contrast than you know, cross the Grand Canal, and it was like you had crossed the, the Berlin Wall in terms of ideological differences. But, like, I should say that he was hilarious. Um, I mean, he talked about all kinds of, you know, architectural uh, plays that, are, that he was making, and it sort of, you know, he sort of pre-anticipated, you know, uh, uh, British high-tech and, and uh, postmodernism, you know, in his work in the 60s. And it was still was carrying it through, clearly enjoying himself, but he just he just had some very odd metaphors and comparisons at one point, you know, suggesting, you know, pushing back against this idea that that Neom needed to be made out of a, uh, you know, a solid mirrored wall because that was something that that Mohammed bin Salman is apparently obsessed with and is absolutely not going to back down on. Yet all the architects proposed punctuation perforation uh, in the skin, or at least showed a lot of their models without the mirrored glass, because A, they were sectional models, and they wanted you to see the inside. But I think Peter Cook was saying, like, no, 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 we should, we should bust through. But his metaphor was oddly chosen. He said, well, you know, um, I, I, think of, I, th- I think of women, some of whom are in this audience, you know, and they reach a certain age, and their skin, you know, develops, you know, moles and things. I think that just makes them more beautiful, and the architecture should do that, too. And it was this sort of backhanded, semi-misogynistic, anachronistic compliment to the people who were sitting right in front of him. There was just this sort of feel that he could get away with saying anything and that Neom had put him forward to prove that they were open-minded. Like, they had put him forward because he's a gray eminence, he's not going to be a harm to anyone, he's just a silly old man from, from Britain who is revered for his mostly theoretical work. So nobody who really would have anything at risk by criticizing the concept of Neom had yet spoken. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the future programming because they do have some younger architects who theoretically want to get more work and might feel a little bit more uh, trepidatious about trouncing on the concepts of their employer here. But... No. Do you know what I mean? Like he was sort of like was, a, exactly. a, a shill. And, and, you know, obviously, this event was a success, and we spent you know as much of this episode talking about the single you know talk at Neom as we have about the entire international exhibition, which was you know a day and a half, and so totally overwhelming. But it does it does it accentuates it, all of the, the this incredible stark divide between what the Biennale is criticizing is what Neom embodies of pure star architecture built on resource extraction, built on the abuse of indigenous peoples, which we'll come back to in a moment. But the most fascinating thing that Cook said, which, I, you know, which, which again, they treated as, oh, that's just Peter being Peter, was when he sort of funnily but starkly delivered his what he thought would be his judgment on Neom, which is that it would, 
I don't know, I don't, he did not say in so many words that it would fail, but he did say that it would eventually get smaller. They would start by building 500 meter tall sections, and then they would decide it was too difficult. It would go to 350, then 200, then 150, then 100. Then they would stop, and it would be like Brasilia. He, he directly compared it to Brasilia's pilot plan, and then said, as he, in the word he used, shanty towns would appear. And that was like a lightning bolt to me in the sense of it underscored exactly what my ultimate. I will. I have two major objections to Neom. My ultimate objection to Neom is the comparison to Brasilia, which, of course, the, the slums of Brasilia appeared before the pilot plan itself because that was the brutal housing, worker housing that existed there. And second, Brasilia was, you know, in the name of, in, in the words of the Brazilian president of the time, Jubashek, uh, was attempt to do fifty years of progress in five. And the reason I'm objecting to Neom is that. Like Brasilia, or for example, like across over at the Arsenale, the V&A exhibit, one of my always my favorite uh, contributions to the Biennales, the V&A exhibition was devoted to tropical modernism, which was an actual branded effort by the Architectural Association, the AA, in the 1940s and 50s to adapt, uh, you know, uh, you know, Bauhaus and modernity as we knew it to tropical climates through basically you know context sensitive uses of materials, which then was politically adopted by Kwame Nkrumah, the effectively the founding father of modern Ghana and led the decolonization of Ghana, who embraced it as his way to basically again propel Ghana forward into the future to reclaim that future that had been stolen from Africa, and then of course he was overthrown in a coup in 1966. And I guess this is my way of saying this is my my claim here is that is that you cannot build your way out of a lack of institutions and build your way out of a lack of institutional capacity. And that when you try to do it in the form of a city, it fails and leads to disastrous consequences. That happened in Brazil, where a military coup overthrew Kubitschek. It led to a coup that overthrew Kwame Nkrumah. I do not know what will, how the MBS regime will end or whether how it will continue. To be, de- to be declared. But that's my problem with Neom is it's that, that edifice complex that comes back. And it's exactly, again, what the rest of the Biennale was critiquing. And then the other one, as a final note on this, is that also at the same time, which I missed this time, is that several weeks before, the United Nations human rights experts had filed a formal report about not just, of course, the land expulsions by the native, by the indigenous peoples who dwell in the land that is designated as Neom, which is advertised as tabula rasa, this this other great crime of architecture, that we're building something from nothing, where not only have they expelled the native indigenous peoples of that area, but several of them have been charged with the death penalty for resisting force expulsions, which is basically a human rights abuse on top of everything else. So, you know, when we talk about like, you know, why you don't want to work with the Saudis or why it's odious to work with the Saudis, I feel people dwell, of course, on the, you know, the crime, the murder of assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, which is, of course, horrible. But these crimes are continuing. And I I just think, you know, there's a lot of critique about this out there about this. But, you know, it's again, just to bring this back, and I know I'm, I'm rambling slightly at this point, Dan, but it was striking for us to literally earlier in the day on Saturday, on the, on the 20th of the Biennale, to go from the Canadian Pavilion, and we'll talk about that in more detail, but to go from this amazing gathering by the, by the curators of Canada to talk about housing, not for sale was the name of their pavilion, and to have indigenous leaders from the Squamish and the Cree in Canada and talk about how they were determined to never assimilate, to reclaim their lands and to build on it, and then to go from that to Neom, where they are denying the existence of indigenous peoples and sentenced to death 
was a crazy contradiction. And I guess it's my final point on that is that the Neon Pavilion just makes the rest of the Biennale so much stronger. It is like the last vestige of the Schumachers of the world to see that pure distilled into a single pavilion. All right, rant over. I hand it back to you. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I came away pretty gobsmacked. Like I, 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 in the same way that I was gobsmacked by the, the political uh, and social representation that was achieved by a lot of the uh, national pavilions and the the curated exhibition in the Arsenale. It was the the sort of just brute force, uh, full steam ahead aspect of of Neom, and also just the utter like there's been so much speculation about that project and all of it just suddenly got unloaded at once at Venice with like apparently no restrictions uh, was, was also just kind of stunning. I mean, it was, it was just like information overload and uh, it was as if, if somebody could have written the story uh, of contrasts, I, I don't, I think, I think as an editor of a of fiction, I would have turned to them and said, Oh, I think this is too on the nose. Like, the contracts are too stark. I think you have to soften the edges a little bit. Um, actually, the the and there was also you know you mentioned the V&A exhibit about tropical modernism in um, uh, in uh, in uh, Africa, but there was also an uh, exhibit on Brazil, right, where they talked about Brazilia, which won the Golden Lion for and best national was, pavilion. There yeah. was lit- right, and it was Brazil reflecting on itself, um, which was kind of striking. Um, I mean, to be fair to the, the the delegation that set up the Saudi Arabian pavilion, it had nothing to do with the futurism of MBS or the current administration. It was all about vernacular architecture. It was I know, I, another another remarkable contrast. Yeah, it was amazing that even the official curators of Saudi's own pavilion was a very was a very context sensitive. Uh, or, you know, sensitive to the context of the Biennale doing it. And then you had like Neom, the spaceship landing over there. It was utterly fascinating. Um, well, I want to, we have a few minutes left here and I want to, I want to come back to the tote bags, a uh, subject near and dear to my heart, because, you know, it's, it's about speaking, well, speaking of soft power and messaging, it's, you know, uh, you know, I mean, number one, we could talk about the environmental waste of all these tote bags. <laughs> That's a whole other issue, but I do find it interesting to see all the pavilions that, that present them and how they become seen across the Giardini and the Arsenale and the messaging they send. So, you know, so there's, there's a couple I want to call out, which is number, number one, I, I guess if I had like the top five, the five that I collected going in sort of a, let's say in a reverse order, I thought it was really interesting that, you know, that, yeah, that uh, three of the five uh, were coming from regimes that I think are considered undemocratic. So the Saudi pavilion had a beautiful, in the, a beautiful, at a very, not just cotton, but in a sort of, you know, I don't know, ballistic material in my mind, but in the same beautiful earth tones of its pavilion, well, well decorated. We'll give that fifth place in my ranking. Um, fourth place goes to the Hungarian pavilion. So you have the, Or, you know, Victor Orban and their pavilion, not to, not to cross streams here, but devoted to sort of the museum complexes being built in Budapest, but had this beautiful over the shoulder blue strap and, you know, sort of like, almost like QR code, video game bit rendering, gorgeous design that gets fourth place. Uh, third place goes to the UAE for their Arab abundance, uh, Arabic calligraphy on it in multiple colors. You can get a red or a black. That was seen a lot throughout the grounds. Um, and I'm also ranking it not just in aesthetics, but in terms of also like, you know, people carrying them around here. But the top two, the ones you particularly saw on the first day of the preview on the Giardini where we started, there were two that really stood out. 
Um, one was, of course, this was the Swiss Pavilion, which had this great theme of neighbors. Uh, the Swiss Pavilion and the Venezuela Pavilion opened for the first time in years, um, had shared a wall, and you know they had sort of you know basically knocked it down to share this. So the bag itself is in a sort of beautiful mix of you know sans serif Helvetica, and then of course a serif typeface I didn't recognize to sort of combine it. But lots of people carrying around this beautiful Swiss you know Biennale one. So there you go. There's there's your minimalist good taste, and then the best tote bag, the golden line for tote bags, goes to the Canadians, which was seen everywhere. And seen everywhere because it was a fantastic graphical signal. It was a red fist with the letters A-A-H-A, Architects Against Housing Alienation, which I hope is pronounced, aha, Um, we'll see. And uh, But then in buttons as well. And, you know, very representative, of course, of, of architecture again, and the Biennale itself, which is, you know, here we are in Venice drinking spritzes, being called out by the cool kids of Twitter out there, but, you know, carrying around these tote bags about, you know, our great credentials here of, like, calling for fairer housing. Again, the sort of all the contradictions that we have here of, like, wanting good politics and wanting to make a difference, but also wanting to be on the grounds of the Biennale, which, again, which I found, I don't know, to be a, rec- a contradiction I could reconcile when I had to go to Venice to hear elders of the Squamish nation talk about, you know, my favorite quote of the entire Biennale was, we, have, we will never assimilate, we are not loyal subjects of the crown, which is someone who resides in, in Canada part-time and my children are being raised there. I thought it was just fascinating to have to go to, to, to Venice to have that conversation. And that to me was like the ultimate worth of the Biennale. So, so Golden Lion for, for tote bag goes to the Canadians there, which was, you know, ubiquitous across it. I, I saw it at the airport as I was flying out and, and across Venice. So certainly, certainly the people we want to believe. And again, you know, hearing from indigenous elders and having that tote bag and then going to Neom, it, it's the it's that contradiction that just makes everything else in even starker relief. So so thank you, Neon Pavilion, for all that you've done. All right. Well, with that, we'll end the episode here. I think from that as we try to recover from from sheer that. But yeah, our next episode will come back. We're gonna see if we can get some footage uh, or, or some tapes from various people. But yeah, obviously we talked a bit about the Canadian Pavilion. Uh, we're gonna shout out about Latvia with their hilarious supermarket. Um, I, I guess I'll just adjoined her here that, you know, if we have show notes here, you should definitely read Oliver Wainwright's uh, review for The Guardian. I think my favorite so far. We met Ollie at one of the events there and, um, you know, a, also a charming person. Pleasure meeting you, Ollie. Um, but also the Australian Pavilion ties into the resource extraction. Austria, which we'll get into a whole other separate discussion about the battles over the, the Biennale itself, the foundation, um, and some other great ones. South Korea, the Netherlands, and some other good ones as well. So um, we'll save that for next episode. But but yeah, Dan, I, I think it's off to, off to a great start here. We've got so many episodes and materials coming up and so many great curators that listeners, you're in for, in for a treat over the next coming weeks. So can't wait. Oh, indeed. Thanks for sticking with us for the, for the second round of uh, Biennale breakdown, down, down, down. Um, All right. Well, with that, listeners, take care. We'll be back very soon with part two of our Biennale Breakdown. (laughs) 